This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, we talk to a man who played rugby at BYU, went on to make a World Cup roster for the United States. He's now the CEO of a professional rugby team in Utah, which he says he wants to make the epicenter of rugby in North America. His name is Kimball Kerr. What's up, Kimball? Hey, how are you? Good to have you here. I'm great. So uh, your last name often gets mispronounced. Kajar, just constantly. How many people get it right off the bat? Very few. Well, actually, you know, it's kind of funny and ironic that I live in Draper, and my kids go to Corner Canyon High School. So luckily, my kids are saved all of the embarrassment of having to tell everybody how to pronounce their name because they know who Coach Eric Kerr is because he's one. Because all those, Zach Wilson now. Zach, yeah, basically Zach Wilson. Yeah, and uh, Jackson Dart and <laughs> yeah. many others, right? All, yeah, I mean, yeah. they've got that thing rolling. But, yeah, no, I mean, growing up, even when I was here at BYU, I was known as Kajar, Kajar, all sorts of different nicknames. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's very rarely pronounced correctly off the first bat. Okay, you and I met, I think, in probably 08. All of my roommates Late played 08. on the yeah. rugby team. Yep. Steve St. Pierre, Derek and Mike Smith, Manti Sua. Tim Steflick, uh, yeah, a bunch of those guys. Then later, uh, Dylan Libba and Sean Davies and Ray Forster and these guys. So that was my connection was, well, I'm just the roommate there. Then BYU TV said, hey, in 09 and 10, we're going to broadcast some games. So we did, I think, three games. Yep. And at the time, that was the first time. First live national broadcast of, of college rugby. College rugby. That was pretty was cool. BYU TV, yeah. You were an assistant coach, and I was like, this guy seems cool. Uh, at the time, you had uh, brown hair. Now you have gray hair because you've become a CEO of a rugby <laughs> team. So it's been this long journey, which we will explore. So let's let's dive back to how you even got into rugby. You show up at BYU. You're here to wrestle? Yeah. And then the program gets cut? Is that how it begins? Uh, I, I was bef- it was before it got cut. But uh, I was coming down to BYU to wrestle, yes. Um, it, it goes back a little bit further. Um, I guess this is your long-form format, so I can go we over have the time, long baby. story. <laughs> we have time. So um, I was actually you know, big into wrestling, big into football in high school, uh, did a little bit of track and field, and I, I actually had a number of friends in high school that played rugby uh, up at one of two clubs. There was one up in Davis County called aptly called the Davis uh, Rugby Club, and then there was obviously Highland Rugby, and I had a couple friends from Bountiful that were playing at both of those, and a handful of times they're like, yeah, you should come out and play for, play rugby. You'd love rugby. You should come out and play. And I'd be like, eh, I think it'd be really cool, but I've got wrestling and I've got all these other things that, that I was doing. Mostly wrestling because uh, freestyle and Greco uh, seasons typically run kind of in that April, May, June time frame. So that's when high school rugby here in Utah typically is. Anyways, never had the chance, but it kind of stuck with me that – that would be pretty fun to be able to go do and play. Um, anyways, fast forward. Um, after my senior year in high school, I was coming down here to BYU to wrestle. Um, on scholarship? No. I, I was doing one of those kind of preferred walk-on things. And um, and candidly, it was, it was kind of like I really like wrestling, but to be a wrestler at the university level – at the collegiate level, you've got to have a couple screws loose or just be completely passionate. Like, honestly, it's, it's, it's either end of the spectrum. There's really nothing in between. I've seen Foxcatcher. Yeah. Well, there's that and then there's just the whole – like, it's just cutting of the weight thing and the – Yeah. You know, they, they basically train twice a day, um, six days a week. And, yeah, I mean – Sounds do, super fun. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Especially, you know – as you're coming into college, you kind of want to have a, a fun college experience as you know as best we can here at good old BYU, right? Um, so, I I told my I told my family, I, my dad, who's a he he actually wrestled down here at BYU. Uh, he was on scholarship, um, so wrestling's kind of big in our family. And I told him, I said, Dad, I don't think I want to wrestle anymore. I'm kind of done. And he was supportive. Um, and uh, anyways, fast forward to when we're st- I'm sitting here at uh, in old the old Heritage Halls with my roommates, and one of my roommates is uh, good old Professor uh, 
uh, Taylor Nadal over here at, in the BYU Business School. Is that Justin's brother? That's Justin's brother. Okay. But uh, yeah, shout out to the Nadal family. They, they're the ones that I, I can blame for all this chaos. But um, uh, Taylor, who was my roommate, um, and he ended up playing rugby as well and ended up being an All-American U.S. Eagle as well. But um, he said, you should go try out for the rugby team because I was, I was kind of telling him like, I, I want to do something here at BYU. I'm too small to be on the football team. I'm too small to, uh, you know, do anything else. I'm, What's your height and weight at this point? I was five nine, probably one eighty five, one ninety. You know, so that just scream scrum half. Well, it, it it does for rugby, but you know, back then I was like, I in high school I played DB and receiver, and I was I was decent. I wasn't like super fast. You Where'd know, you go to high school again? Bountiful High. Bountiful. Bountiful High. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I was okay. I didn't get really recruited to go play football anywhere. Um, not even, you know, the, the lowliest of lowliest teams were really concerned for, you know, to have a little hobbit come and play for them. <laughs> but um, anyways, I, I wanted to do something other than uh, intramural sports where, you know, you're going to pray with the other team before y- y- you get sunk into the to the game itself. So, um Rugby, he said, you should go try out for the rugby team. My brothers had played. His older brother, Lincoln, his older brother, uh, Justin, had all played in James. So he had three older brothers that had played rugby here down at BYU, and they loved the experience. And I said, I'll go give it a whack. Um, And because I was just in such good shape from wrestling, um, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, I didn't know – that there was an offsides line. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I didn't know that there were certain things you could do at a ruck versus other things. I didn't know what a scrum was versus a lineout was, and but I could run sideline to sideline for eighty minutes, and if it had a ball, I could tackle it, and that's really all I really knew. Anyways, made the team. Yeah, kind of the rest is history from there. But yeah, it was it was kind of happenstance that. Uh, um, rugby kind of got introduced, but at the same time, I'd kind of been thinking about it from my high school days. Okay. You said, eh, and then it happened. Well, how quickly did it happen? Because you became a three-time All-American, and then in 2003, you find yourself on the USA World Cup roster. Yeah. So how quickly did you become pretty good at it? Well, that's kind of the next leg of the story, which is um, – I guess again we're kind of in long form here. So, um, so I, I made the team, and it, it was an amazing experience because you got we got to travel, and this was back in the day when we used to actually stay with uh, LDS uh, family members. Like they'd put us up in their homes, and uh, you know one of the families we were staying with, this guy owned all of these. Um, uh, family fun centers, and he dropped. We got dropped off at one of them, and he came out with like a five-gallon bucket of of uh, tokens, and we just went to town on the arcades and the mini putt. <laughs> and I mean, just just the way that being a part of you know the BYU and the LDS community and how we were were received, even though we weren't an athletic department program, we still wore the logo on our chest, and we still you know tried to represent you know, the university with pride. So people resonate with that. So it was fun. It was exciting. I, I, and I was traveling the country with these, these guys that were all return missionaries. Some of them were married. Um, you know, there's so many guys that I, I could name, but you know, one of them, you know, that kind of stood out was a guy by the name of Pete Mon. He's a, he's a neurosurgeon here now locally. And, um, you know, he was the one that actually taught me that there was an offsides line in the game, and that there was certain rules and boundaries that you had to kind of kind of play within. And um, guys like Romaine Marshall, Eric O, um, uh, you know, and the list could go on and on. We played with Henry Bloomfield uh, after he was done with his football stuff, and you know that freshman year was such a, an enjoyable experience learning the game traveling around uh, the the US and um, being able to represent BYU which was a school that I'd grown up just you know idolizing from my younger you know football days um it was it was really fun so that got me really excited but really what ended up being the the nail that that you know sealed the coffin or kind of sealed my fate so to speak 
was uh, I got my mission call, and um, of all places, they sent me to Australia. And now, listen, rugby is is a big sport there, but it's not like the biggest. People think that rugby is just you know what you do, like and you know. There's kangaroos and crocodiles walking down the street. And rugby balls. Yeah, and rugby, you know, there's, stuff. There's Aussie rules football. So there's, there's Aussie, yeah, there's Aussie <laughs> rules, there's cricket, there's all sorts of other sports. But, um, yeah, I mean, rugby is a big sport and it's huge, uh, no doubt. But to, to go and then kind of live in a country where rugby was a part of the culture uh, and you saw what rugby is and was – as a as a as a community and as a community builder and a culture builder and what it could do to unite families and uh, people because rugby is kind of unique you know maybe we can talk about that later but uh, it, it is a sport that you know no matter where I go in the world I'm welcomed and you know to see that in action I just fell in love with it and you know I knew that that was going to kind of be my fate anyways we played touch uh, touch rugby. Um, and you're like, hey, you're offside at, <laughs> at this point. Right. That's right. <laughs> I, well, I have to make sure as well that we play touch – I say touch rugby um, instead of just touch. But we played touch rugby on my mission uh, on our P days. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I was in one area my entire mission uh, for the most part because I was in this Mandarin-speaking program. So You we, speak Mandarin? I didn't know this. Uh, EDNDN. That's it. That's all I remember. That's all you remember? <laughs> That's it. Don't ask me to start having, you know, one-on-one conversations here. But um, we were supposed to go over there and teach in Mandarin. And, yeah, I picked it up to the point where at the end of my mission I could have a gospel conversation. But, um, you know, for the most part it was, uh, dare I say, pick up lines at the bus stop. I always say that too. People go, oh, so you're fluent in Portuguese. I went to Brazil. Yeah. I go, well, yes and no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've learned in church speak. Yeah, not general. Speak. Back then, yeah. if someone started talking to me about you know geopolitical business affairs of oh, China and anything, I else, can barely do that in English. I, I just tell them, you know, listen, can we talk? And the, most people that were there, they wanted to speak English anyways. Yeah, they're in Australia. Yeah, but um, the, the 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 key thing there was is that we didn't ever leave. Like we were in the same area. For 21 – I was in the same area for 21 months of the 24 months. Wow. I was on my mission. Yeah. That's it was, rare. It, it, no, for those who don't know, you typically move every 6 to 12 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so that was either awesome or a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we were with – I was with you know three uh, missionaries, three elders for that same amount of time. And, wow. Um, you couldn't have picked three more divergent – four more divergent personalities – um, to be with and, you know, love them to death this day. But um, I think two years was enough for all of us, you know. So <laughs> I think we keep in touch, but, you know. It's a long time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so the thing that we decided to do was we're not just going to play basketball or go, you know, we're going to do something fun and different and enjoy the culture and the community. So most P days we would end up at uh, Sunnybank Hills Rugby Club right there in, in Brisbane and and uh, the the zone in the area knew that that was kind of a standing tradition. And then the members in the area would come out and play as well, and they'd bring friends. It, you know, it was one of those things that was kind of a, um, you know, proselyting tool as well. But, uh, we yeah, we'd go play touch and got to practice my rugby. That's you know. pretty awesome. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was fun. Came back, um, having spent two years playing touch rugby every week, um, and – Having learned a little bit more about the culture, interacted with you know some of the the Polynesian community, the Kiwis from New Zealand, and and everyone in between, you know, in, in kind of that expat vibe, and and um, yeah, I came back to BYU. Um, we started to kind of help get the program going, and it was already pretty well established at that phase. But we were, you know, we were really gung ho on trying to you know be able to play in that national championship, which we hadn't ever played in since like the early 80s because it was played on Sunday. Um, and really where my, my inflection, the next kind of big inflection point was, um, was we played a game down at Cal against the vaunted, you know, Cal, California Berkeley Bears. 
And they had won, I think, at that point, 16 of the last 17 national championships. And, and that was, what, 2001 got recognized by Jack Clark, who was the general manager, and uh, Tom Billups, who was on, on the U.S. team coaching staff and got selected that summer to go play with the U.S. national team, and off we went. So, off you go to the 2003 World Cup as well. So, yeah. Where I, was that held? That was back, that was back in Australia. Um, You're back. Yeah. Um, some interesting stories there I could kind of tell you a, a little bit about. But, yeah, I played with the U.S. national team from 2001 until about 2007 when I was kind of uh, deselected and asked to quietly, you know, ride off into the sunset. But um, great experience. Great experiences all six, seven years. Did you ever think, hey, I'm going to be on a World Cup roster? <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> that, that's like pretty yeah, gnarly, I, man. I mean, you know, obviously jumping into the deep end of the pool in 2001, I didn't know my head from my tail. I was still – You that, go from not knowing offside to to being so, on the USA? Yeah, so my – so let's see. So I, my freshman year was 96, 97, went on my mission 97, 99, came back – uh, kind of in that uh, ninety late ninety nine, I was back in school. So really, my my first year of really playing scrum half, which was kind of my my key position with the U.S. national team, was really two thousand two thousand one. So I really only been playing scrum half for about a year. Oh wow! And are you the third string on that roster? Or uh, the backup? Who did we have? I was kind of if there is such a thing, I was kind of second and a half string. Mm-hmm. We, we had <laughs> we had three of us. And the third was a guy by the name of Mose Timoteo, a uh, great guy. Um, uh, there's Kevin Dalzell, myself, and then Mose Timoteo. And Mose was uh, a Western Samoa-raised kid that lived here in the U.S. Um, who had, uh, you know, uh, immigrated to the U.S. Um, but he played kind of uh, wing fullback and scrum half. So they kind of kept him as sort of their flex scrum half guy, but – it was me and Kevin Dalzell for you know those those two or three years there between 2001 2004, but um, yeah 2003 was amazing going down and and not only going back to Australia we actually were in Brisbane, so you're there typically about six weeks for the World Cup. Um, we were in Brisbane for the two week build up before the actual competition started. So I was actually there and we played two games in Brisbane. So I was there basically three and a half weeks, and that was 2003. It was still relatively fresh after my mission, so I got to go back and see people and be a part of their lives and, um, yeah, some, some unique special stories there. So you end up uh, graduating. You're, you're off USA. You're done playing in 07-ish, you said? Yeah. I was, okay. try- I was trying to get back on the – so I, I took 2004 off. Fam, young family needed to get a job. Rugby here in the U.S. wasn't professional at the time, and it is now, which we'll get into. It, 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 yeah, and so I was I was asked to to go overseas to sleep on couches to play with these Division three, Division two teams, and then maybe I'd get a contract. And I wasn't really interested in doing that, so I took two thousand four off. Um, we just had our first our first child, and. Um, Needed to be a little bit responsible. Needed to grow up a little bit. Um, had just graduated from BYU as well. Um, but 2005, 2006, I wanted to. I wanted to kind of make one last run at um, another World Cup in 2007, which was going to be in France. And um, you know, I was successfully making that run. And um, you know, unfortunately, the coaching staff at the at the last minute, I had I had been kind of the number one, number two scrum half that year. Um, we were kind of switching back and forth between uh, myself and this guy by the name of Chad Erskine. And um, right at the very end, uh, just before they were going to announce the the team to go to France, they dropped me. And I didn't even get a phone call from the head coach. How did you find out? From one of my teammates, former University of Utah rugby guy, Blake Burdett. Mm. And, um, you know, so imagine that, you know, your, your former University of Utah buddy who 
you know, I love to this day, telling me that, oh, you didn't hear? Yeah, they, they didn't pick you. And, um, yeah, just kind of being gutted on the phone call. Just and you're thinking you might be the starter, let alone yeah, I off thought, the team. Yeah, I thought at least weird. I had a chance. Yeah. yeah, I thought I had a chance to be the, you know, the number nine jersey. But, um, no, that was, that was, that was uh, an interesting experience. But, you know, I think that, you know, life works out the way that it's supposed to. And, you know, there's some things that, that occurred later that year that were important more important for me to be home for than, than anything else. So, um, yeah, in, in hindsight, it was, it was a little bit gutting, but at the same time, it was, uh, dare I say, you know, meant to be. What were those things that it was important you were home uh, for? My wife's mom, uh, she passed away from cancer. Um, and had I been in France at the time with the U.S. national team, I wouldn't have been able to be there for my wife and my kids and, um, to help in whatever way I could with that whole horrible experience. Her mom was was pretty young. She was 51, uh, passed away from um, lung cancer, of all things, non-smoker, but kind of a, you know, sad, but, you know, uh, in, in important thing that uh, I was able to be there for. And had I been in France, I wouldn't have been able to make it back in time to help because it just went... When she um, passed away, it just went really fast. So, Okay, you've always known you wanted to do what you're doing now. Let me manifest this in a quote that I found <laughs> online. I asked Jeeves, and he told me this. Okay, <laughs> you're 23. You did an interview that with— that using your, your Netscape or your Netscape? Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> Kimballcare at Juno.com. Uh, Wes Clark interviews you, and you mm-hmm. said this. I also would like to see the progress of rugby in Utah, including high school rugby, as well as collegiate and men's club rugby. Did you know when you were 23, hey, I want to be the CEO of the Utah Warriors who are going to be a founding club in Major League Rugby in 2018? Which we'll explore more in a moment, but I'm I'm shocked at how much vision you had when you were still young to get to this point. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean— I think I began to realize after I got back from my mission what what rugby here in Utah but more you know at the time I was I was really hyper focused on what BYU could become because I knew that because of our expat community the LDS community um, and the resources and facilities and support that the school was given here even though it wasn't a, a, a you know a an NCAA sport that this university um, could be dominant. And I was really focused on trying to help with that. But within that, I knew that rugby here in Utah was something that was very unique anywhere else that I had traveled, not only in the United States but in the world. Um, Because of the history that we had with uh, the high school community, with – uh, the club rugby community, the collegiate community. I mean, even when I was uh, playing, uh, this was before BYU had won all those national championships that, that they went on to win. Um, you say that you were on the staff for the first several, which I want to explore <laughs> in a second. Yeah. Um, but, you know, rugby has is pound for pound the most successful sport here in the state of Utah. And people don't really know it. That's the That to me was kind of the sad thing, and that's maybe why – I said what I said or just kind of channeling my inner 23-year-old self. But I knew that rugby here in Utah with the history of success that it already had um, could really affect this community for good. You know, we know what sports can do for communities, period. Um, Anytime the Jazz are winning, you know, everyone in the state wants to, you know, they're going to shut down and and go and watch. Uh, And that's great. Um same thing with BYU. You know, we've got these emotional, visceral connections to sport because of of what it can do in terms of a sense of belonging and family and and identity. We, we find, um, you know, meaning within sports in a lot of ways. Um, there's something really existential there. Sorry to get a little bit, you know, philosophical no, here. No, I amen to all that. But rugby, as I've seen it in other countries and in, even here in the U.S., can take that connection to a completely different level. 
Um, Why is that? There's there's a sense of belonging in rugby that you don't get with other sports. You know, just give you a kind of a, a, an example, and, and and you know this having kind of been involved, but um, a, a lot of people don't realize that after every match, both teams will get together and have dinner. They'll, no, no other sport does it. No other sport does that. You know, you, you'd be hard pressed to think that the Jazz are going to get together with the Clippers after their playoff <laughs> games. You know, especially with all the stuff. Pat that we Beverly saw. and Rudy Gobert are going to break bread. Yeah, no. not going to happen. No, the coaches aren't going to get together and share a beer. Right, that's what happens in rugby all the time, every game. Um, it's something that's instilled from the, the top international levels. You know, with the All Blacks, the British and Irish Lions, the English teams, the you know, all the way down to the local high school and community teams. Um, and some of the, the, the people that are my best friends in the rugby community are people that I actually uh, played against because you get to know these guys outside of the lines and you get to understand kind of what their upbringing is and, you know, to hear the story of, uh, of, of how someone's living in Argentina and what it takes to just even get to the rugby club to train to be able to do what they do. They're hopping on a bus for an hour and a half and they're just getting done with maybe their day job and they've got four small kids. But, you know, just to hear that kind of stuff is just so sobering and, and um, you know, brings you kind of back to earth. Um, but you keep those connections, um, you know, with not only the guys that you played with, but the people that you played against. And there's a sense of belonging in a family. And like I said earlier today, uh, you know, you can you can go to any rugby club in the world and you say, hey, listen, I'm a card-carrying member of the rugby family. I'll let you in. You know, there's a lot of people that would just literally let you sleep on their couch, offer you food, give you some drinks. Um, because that's what the rugby community is. It's um, it's just very welcoming and inclusive. It's one of the more inclusive rugby community or sports that I've ever been a part of. And what I think that can do for Utah is something that I get super excited about. It's also awesome because it being the sport of rugby, I've never seen a sport that melds more cultures and languages. Mm. So when we're doing a game, you know, with the Utah Warriors – I'm preparing to call names from South Africa, Wales, <laughs> England, this is, New Zealand, this is Australia, why you're Fiji. Bugging me for pronunciation, going, guys. Hey, how do I say this guy's name? <laughs> Samoa, Fiji. You know, every state in the union. It, it, you know, all Canada, all all over the country. It is so cool to bring those guys together, and then they form what every team wishes they could. Mm. It, which is culture, unity, a oneness that. The flow of rugby requires mm. the sport itself is beautiful. The people that play it are beautiful. Mm. It's so interesting, and and I'm like you. I'm I'm in the hey, you need to learn about this sport. Still, mm. you know, a rugby missionary mm. trying to <laughs> preach the gospel of yeah. of this. Which it's been such a fun journey, and I'm lucky my roommates played rugby, and then I got to be involved. And now we're seeing it grow in the state of Utah in an amazing way. Mm. Um, but I want to go back to. Um, you know, leading up to the Warriors. So you, you're done playing. Mm -hmm. You are now an assistant coach for BYU. Mm -hmm. And now the program goes to a height it had not gone to before. 05, they finally say, okay, we're not going to play the title game on Sunday. BYU's got a shot at the national championship now. Mm -hmm. 05 doesn't go well. 06, 7, 8. Mm -mm -mm. Cal dominates BYU. Yeah. yeah. Then in 09, enough was enough. Mm -hmm. And BYU defeats Cal at Stanford on a night where I uh, cried I'm, massive I'm, tears. I'm still just sitting here getting chills while you talk about it because that 2019 was probably one of the, the the highlights of my entire sporting life. Because, yeah, I mean, 2000, let's see, I finished in 2003. I think in 2004 was the first year that they got to go to the playoffs. And they we didn't know our head from our tail on how to do it because it was a two-day format. It was a Friday, Saturday. You had to play two games. And we didn't really have the depth. And, you know, they, we were a good team. But, you know, I think at that time the program hadn't gotten to where it, it – the foundation had been laid, but it wasn't there yet. 
Um, we knew we had good teams, but it just hadn't gotten there yet. Um, anyways, 2004, they kind of – I think they lost in the quarterfinals. The next year they lost, I think, 2005, dare I say. I think that was the semifinal loss to Utah, which stung. My little brother was on that team. 2006, I think they played in the championship and lost. That was with Salesi Sika, who went on to play professionally in, in France and with the U.S. national team for, for years. Uh, Alapate Tuilavuca. We ended up with like half a dozen guys that played with the U.S. national team that came from that that team, uh, but they they lost because they didn't know how to win just yet. 2007, uh, I wasn't coach. I had just started coaching in the fall, but that year in the spring they lost to Cal again. So there was like three or four years, and I remember the first time I was coaching was uh, officially as an assistant coach was the spring of 2008, and I remember looking over at the Cal team and looking at our team. And we just lost Sal Sika. We just lost uh, Pate and some of these other kind of marquee players. But we somehow got ourselves back to the national championship. And we were just getting pummeled, getting pummeled by this Cal team because their, their, their guys were just huge, massive dudes. Um, it was like 63 to 10 with like 20 minutes to go. And Dave Smith, who was our head coach at the time, old, old Smitty, he, he had his glasses on, but he didn't really have good eyesight. He couldn't see the scoreboard. And he just looks over at me. He goes, Kajar. Kajar. How much time's left in the game? I'm like, 20 minutes, Smitty. Oh, my gracious. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was kind of the low point, I think, of, of where we're at. But you know, like I said, everything had kind of – the foundation had been built and we had kind of built up this rivalry with Cal that we were going to keep pressing them and we were going to keep pushing them to try to continue to defend their title. 2009 rolls around and we end up with tons of, of just committed, hardworking guys, guys like your roommate Steve St. Pierre. The captain. Yeah. Um, Paul Lasique, who's now playing professionally for the Harlequins that just won the premiership. Um, in England this uh, this last year, um, who by the way he'll be to the to the game on Saturday. Oh, that's great! That's um, awesome. He's going to be the uh, alumni flag bearer. Yeah, there or, were and there were a, there were a bunch of pros in Major League Rugby eventually on that yeah, team. Too, on that team, which yeah. Is so cool. like I, I know Josh and Jared. That was their freshman year. Josh and Jared Whippy. Kyle Sumption's freshman year. Kyle Sumption. He yeah he was like uh, Jordan Lowry. He ended up yep. playing with New England for a year. Um, now a Tom Bra- TB12 yeah, guy, a trainer. trainer. For, yeah, yeah, Tom Brady's group. Um, uh, Dan Paul played for Houston. Yeah, there's there's a lot of Sean really Davies, good guys on course. that team. But we were still boxing above our weight. Yeah. And that 2009 team was nothing short of uh, of amazing. And The weight was 59 to 7, just for reference. Okay. okay? Yeah, whatever 20, it was. 2009. <laughs> so you just get pummeled. And then I saw it firsthand. These guys were fed up, man. Yeah, and so going into two thousand nine, all the chips were in yeah. on we got to win this. And you know we had other guys like like Manti Sua who the day before, um, well it was Dan Paul who had broken his jaw and Manti who I think had he done fractured sh- his orbital bone. Yeah, that's right. Was, he w- it, was it Manti who br- fractured his orbital uh-huh. bone? Okay, he and then Dan Paul had yeah. had fractured his jaw the day yes, before. The two starting wingers, right? Yeah, so we were down to we were down kind of our two main guys uh, on the edge. Um, and so it was like, forget it. We're just going to throw everything at these guys as we possibly can. We ended up, I think, even with like three yellow cards, which means for those who don't know, like you end up with a guy kind of in the what we call the sin bin, or you know, kind of use it's a that. Great hot, name. You end up with with guys off the field, so you're playing with less players on the field. We ended up with three yellow cards against Cal, and our guys just kept battling, and they came back late kick to to seal the win and yeah it was amazing 25-22 yep. at Stanford against Cal yep. you finally do it BYU has finally done it yep. they got to the the top of the mountain you were hoping it happened when you were a player but it took you know being a coach and and then BYU goes on a run BYU goes on a run where uh, you know, uh, the next couple of years, there's there's some natties there mm-hmm. and uh, Johnny Linehan comes in Johnny Rugby and mm-hmm. the Whippies and 
there's just it's a great group. It's yeah. a great group, and it's an amazing legacy. And, and BYU fans generally are super proud of that team. Absolutely. Well, I, I remember because <laughs> we were 2009, and, and listen, I respect the 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 athletic department, and everything that they have ever done to help the BYU rugby team, and both the men's and the women's. The women's started soon thereafter, I think, in 2010. And they won the national championship won, in 2019. Yeah, and they've got a, uh, one of their former players that's uh, an Olympian, uh, Jordan Matthias, Jordan Gray, formerly yep. known as. She's great. Um, so they've got uh, an Olympian that comes from that that women's rugby team. But um, y- y- you know, it's 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 kind of interesting and ironic because as BYU fans, as long as we've got the logo on our chest and we're representing the school the way that we should. You know the fans show up, and there were a couple of those games that that we played at Rio Tinto against Cal against Arkansas State, and we had twelve thirteen thousand people, and those were mostly all BYU fans, and we didn't have we didn't have like marketing support. It was I mean it was a club team. Like I was helping with like the social media and the the website and some of the like we were all kind of like doing stuff to help the the program kind of look and feel like a to represent BYU the way that we knew it should. But the the community came out and and did great. I remember um, Tom Homo mentioning to us that he was getting emails and phone calls and texts saying congratulations, congratulations, <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on Thanks? on the national championship. But um, and for those who don't know, athlete Tom has nothing to do with the clubs. Correct. Yeah. Correct. He, he he's they're supportive, but yeah, they can't for right. Title Nine reasons and for other he's not reasons physically involved. They can't. You know, so like, you know, one of the boundaries, unfortunately, that we had was like after that 2009 win, uh, they wanted to display the trophy in the student athlete building in the, you know, in the Legends Hall or whatever, yeah. whatever it is. But up on the third floor in a trophy case that was kind of in the corner and out of the way, not not to be ungrateful, but just to kind of give people context, it was going to be a trophy case that. Probably not even anyone within the athletic department knew it was going to be there. But um, for uh, compliance and other concerns, you know, for Title IX perception and other things, um, they decided that they couldn't do that because they didn't want, you know, the NCAA to, to come down. And, and we, we appreciated the support regardless and nonetheless, but they, they, they can and can't do certain things even though it was, you know, as they saw and we saw, kind of somewhat innocuous to just put a trophy in the corner out of the way that no one really was going to ever really see. But, you know, there's, there's as you know, there's always going to be situations like that with the NCAA being involved. But anyways. To put a bow on the awesomeness of 09, after 08, there were members of the team who didn't take home their medals from that game for second place. In 08. They, they yeah, left they them on the field. the field. They didn't care. In fact, we had a washer and dryer in this house tucked away in the corner. <laughs> and on top of it, for a long time, I thought what I saw and had whatever on it, you know, strewn random clothes, was a uh, like a dinner plate. No, it was the second place trophy <laughs> from the 08 National Championship game against Cal. I pulled it out one day and I was like, what is this? Yeah. These guys do not care about second. They could care less. They're yeah. going all for it. Yeah. So that was they that was they pretty bur- impressive. Two thousand nine. Those guys literally and truly, if the the metaphor stand, it's they had burned the boats. They had burned the boats completely, and they were like, "We're done." So th- that team is always going to stand out to me. But I mean, listen, there were so many other good teams and guys that that I had the fortune of. Of coaching and working with, and to to see what they're doing now with their families, that's that's a very gratifying. That's the one thing that I, I you know I told my wife because I you know it was an unpaid volunteer thing, um, you know that it was my kind of charitable work to be able to kind of feel like I'm helping these young men be able to achieve what they could achieve, and that that's been very rewarding even to this day. Okay, so you finished with BYU. How do you get involved in helping found the Utah Warriors, a major league rugby club? And the context of domestic leagues in the United States is not good. It's one and done. Mm -hmm. One year, done, Mm -hmm. didn't work. Mm -hmm. Major league rugby right now is in its fourth year. It's working. Mm -hmm. The Warriors are one of the first seven teams. We're up to 12 teams. We'll get to at least 13 next year. It's growing. 
How did this start and how did you get involved? Because now it's this 23-year-old's vision coming to fruition of we got a, we got a team in Utah in a league that is sticking. Yeah. Oh, shoot, you know, um, happenstance, luck, just weird situ- – I mean, all sorts of different things kind of coalesced to, for me to be sitting in this chair and to be a part of this. I mean, I was I was gainfully employed, had a good business, was working with some business partners on a couple different things, and, you know, things were going relatively well. We had just kind of come out of that whole Great Recession stuff, and um, things were going – Pretty good. Life was great. Young family. Um, but, you know, you kind of pointed out there was another league that started called Pro Rugby. Um, P-R-O, Professional Rugby Organization. They called it Pro Rugby. Um, they got sanctioning to be uh, professionally here in the U.S. in 2016, I believe. They started with five teams. In fact, a couple of our former BYU guys uh, played on on some of those teams, Kyle Sumption, uh, Sean Davies, um, among a few others, I believe. Um, and it just went; it didn't go anywhere. We so I, I at that time I was kind of working with uh, in 2014 and 15. I was still working with USA Rugby as the former international athlete on their board, and I was kind of helping out with some of that sort of stuff and working with a couple other different stakeholders. I was also helping with, um, uh, you know, we'd help put together the Varsity Cup, and I was helping manage some of those those elements. So I was trying to help move the game along as I thought would be good. Anyways, um, we all realized and saw that the way that this league, this pro rugby group was set up, wasn't going to be able to stand the test of time because if you go back and you look at any professional sports league here in the United States, no league has been able to stay on its own two feet as long as it's got one monolithic owner, meaning that you know if, if there's one guy just owning all the teams, it's not going to be able to – it's not going to scale. It's not going to be sustainable. Why? Well, you know, you saw it with the AAFL. You even saw it with the XFL. If it doesn't end up working to the level that that individual needs or wants, financially, it's just going to end up not making sense for them because they're going to end up saying, well, I just stroked millions and millions of dollars uh, to try to make this thing work, and I don't really have much to show for it. And what people don't really understand is that, like, professional sports don't make lots of money. I mean, there's lots of money going through them, but you don't make a lot. Even the NFL and the NBA, you're not making tons and tons of money. Um, because whatever you do make, you're going to end up plowing back into fan experience or bigger contracts for players or you're going to facilities. facilities, whatever it is. You're, it's the same thing with the athletic departments and universities. They don't make lots of money, but they do end up creating uh, brand prestige and community engagement and um, you know, university identity and, you know, fandom, you know, connections, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, sports is, candidly, it's not making tons and tons of money. So these monolithic owners, models, those models don't work. We knew that it was going to fail. And so uh, a handful of us that were looking at this and watching this, we said, okay, Rugby is going to be professional here within the United States at some point. It just is. The U.S. is the last market, the last major sports market that does not have any type of professionalized rugby. World rugby wants it to professionalize in the U.S. because they stand to gain oodles financially and otherwise. They want the U.S., they want Canada, they want, they want the Western Hemisphere to kind of grow up to its potential rugby-wise. So we knew that there was going to be an interest and in, in, in a need to do that. We began to kind of collate some of these like-minded groups and, and individuals, um, and that's when we began to, to formulate the, the construct of Major League Rugby. At the time, it was called Major Rugby Championship, placeholder name at the time. But the biggest thing that we knew needed to, to happen was, first and foremost, the business model needed to be um, 
uh, sound enough to be able to, to weather the storms that were going to come its way financially and otherwise. And you totally knew there'd be a pandemic coming. We because, saw. Oh that, my gosh. Yeah, we saw that. Well, I mean, listen. Yeah, that uh, this this model, what we call the single entity model, is the same model that Major League Soccer used. Uh, it's basically a partnership model instead of um, you know other professional leagues. You, you, you have a single entity, and then they franchise out. Um, regions and geographies. Um, we're not necessarily technically a franchise. We're a partner within Major League Rugby. Mm-hmm. Real Salt Lake is a partner within Major League Soccer. Um, and so you stand to share and benefit, but you all have equal say and equal rights as to what the overall entity can and can't do. Um, it was the model because of that that we felt would be sustainable and scalable because Major League Soccer People forget Major League Soccer was 10 years into their life and people didn't know if they were going to exist. Mm. You know, 2004, 2005, there was kind of a reckoning as to whether or not they were going to still be around. Um, and that's when Real Salt Lake came in, uh, Dave Checkett's, Dean Howes, that, you know, um, that group came into to being and that kind of kicked off the the, the first – expansion of of everything major league soccer anyways now it's massive now it's crazy i yeah. mean you've got uh the carolinas with um uh forgetting his name right now the the big hedge fund manager um paid 325 million for uh, his membership rights into Major League Soccer. For, to be clear, if someone wants to buy the Utah Warriors for $325 million, <laughs> you will listen. We'll have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have that conversation. Um, you know, I think RSL, their membership was like 14 or $15 million in 2004. Um, the Carolina team was, was purchased in 2019 for $325 million. Not bad. Decent appreciation. Mm-hmm. It's like um, a house in Utah. Just a little bit, yeah, in the last <laughs> month. Um, so we, we put together this, this construct, the, the, the kind of the basic, you know, identity of what we're trying to do. And, um, yeah, we, we ended up with a handful of folks that were ready to, to put together this partnership. We ended up with seven teams in 2018. That quickly grew to 12 in 2019. Uh, we're st- we stayed at 12 for 2000. Even though we were 13 members, we stayed at 12 teams in 2020. Um, we have 12 teams again this year, again, 13 members. Dallas will be the 13th team this next season in 2022. And there's plenty of other good positive conversations going on in other geographies for expansion. So, yeah, it's, I mean, that's kind of the, the gist. Let's talk about Utah specifically. So. Yeah. I am also the play-by-play broadcaster and a host of a weekly show with the Utah Warriors. Yep. Full disclosure. <laughs> uh, so I am a massive fan, obviously, of what's going on with this. Uh, you called me in 2018 and said, hey, we've started a league and a team, and do you want to broadcast again? I was like, yeah, man, rugby. I haven't done this in— <laughs> Did I sound that sort of, like, diminutive? Eight? Hey, uh— Hey, uh— Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eight years uh, before we had done the game, so I hadn't called any in a minute, but this has been awesome. So here we are in year four— and, uh, you know, July 10th, you had a celebration of rugby. Yep. And it was so cool. And we talked after about, man, this has not happened, where you had the national champions from Utah this year in high school rugby, um, Harriman, won the, the high school national championship. Harriman was there. Some alums from uh, Highland, of course, United, who have made a massive splash in that uh, space. Obviously, uh, BYU and Utah and other mm-hmm. – other colleges around, and of course the Utah Warriors and, and others. It was super cool to see that. When you say the epicenter of rugby and you say Utah's really good at rugby as a state, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, yeah. Let all, and they were all in the field together, and that was a pretty special moment that kind of gives us a glimpse into obviously the past, but also into the future of what can happen here with that vision. Yeah, I mean, like I I think some of our my MLR partners, you know, they get a, they, you know, it's kind of like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. <laughs> when you when, say when I say, I, you know, listen, Utah, I believe genuinely can and should be the epicenter of North American rugby. Is this mainly because of the Polynesian influence, it's or is pa- that partly? It's, that's that's a big influence, and yeah. that was kind of all part of that whole, you know, on watch celebration of rugby was acknowledging that 
um, you know, the, the city of Eosepa and the, the origins of the Polynesian community here in Utah. And, you know, we have the second largest Polynesian population base outside of Polynesia here in Utah. Um, you're, you're saying outside of those actual countries? Outside of those actual countries. So number one state. Auck- Auckland, New Zealand is the biggest population base for the Polynesian community outside of Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, you know, all the, all the Polynesian countries. Mm. Utah's next. We have the largest, wow. po- you know, Polynesian population base uh, outside of, uh, of Polynesia. And because of that, yeah, we have a, a very unique uh, cultural, you know, uh, foundation there. But even more so because of, you know, call it the LDS church influence and the expat community uh, that kind of got tied into, you know, emigrating to Utah and kind of building this sort of ecosystem of the crossroads of the West, dare I say crossroads of the world. Um, yeah, you have so many people that came here. Uh, like BYU rugby started in the the mid '60s from a guy by the name of John Sager. Um, you know he grew up in England and New Zealand and South Africa, and quickly you know he had other guys that were coming from those countries that wanted to be a part of it. And then they taught their American friends, and then their American friends went out and taught you know. So it it it's got all these ties for decades here in the in in the United in in Utah. In fact. You know, people were playing rugby, the rugby code of football here at BYU just at the turn of the century, you know. So there's a lot of that stuff that historically is a part of uh, a part of our history. People just don't know it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, l- l- listen, the, the championships that Highland Rugby, um, United, uh, BYU, Utah, um, there's so much success that's here in the state of Utah that it doesn't even compare, doesn't even get close to comparing for any other state in, in the United States um, across the board. And because of the, the recognition that the sport has been given and, and you know, you've got Olympians, you've got national team members, men and women, it just doesn't there's, – there's really no other state that has the capability of saying we've got so much success and we're going to build on this success by – you know, hopefully building that pinnacle on top, which is really what we, you know, as I see as the Warriors, is helping to provide that aspirational, um, you know, pinnacle for for athletes. So now you've got a team that in its fourth year has made the playoffs for the second time. It's having the best year of the four years, has become the comeback kings and has won a bunch of games in the last five minutes. It's been incredible has clinched a playoff spot and uh, will play here coming up on July 25th against the L.A. Guiltinis in the L.A. Coliseum. Yep. What, how have you felt about the success of this season and what you've been able to build with a team that is unique compared to many of its peers in the league in the composition of the team? Yeah. I'm – Kyle, I'm going to use a, a rugby word here, but uh, I'm chuffed. You know, I don't know what that means. What's chuffed? It's means? excited. It's, excited? It's, yeah, it's <laughs> it's the very uh, Commonwealth word of uh, I'm just so chuffed. You know, um, you know, to think of like where this team has come from, and like 2019 is a year that I think everyone within the Warriors organization would just soon forget. It was two wins, twelve losses, and two ties, and twelve of those losses, you know, were. Just almost identical to some, you know, just but on the losing side of some of the games that we've had this year on the winning side where we were there, but we just couldn't quite close it out for whatever reason. Um, you know, and to, to see the, the progress that has been made, uh, even in 2020 with just the five games that we had, um, to see the, the progress that's, that's taken place. Um, and with the dedication of our players, the ones that have been here from day one, like guys like Lance Williams, Saya Uhila, uh, Angus McClellan's going to be getting his 50th cap um, at the L.A. game on the 25th, not this weekend, not, the, you know, version 1.0 of the the, Gil- the Giltini's games. Um, to see guys that are going to get those types of benchmarks and, and – it's super rewarding to see them be able to to finally get their just desserts 
especially those guys, because they've been through a lot. Guys like Josh Whippy, Jared Whippy, both those guys had, had BYU alums. You mentioned BYU alums. Um, both of them sadly had the exact same double tib fib fracture occur in 2018. Josh has fought his way back. Jared has had a little bit of a, a longer road to recovery, but to see them finally, you know, living up to their potential. Guys like Calvin Whiting, who's a former BYU rugby guy, get called up to the U.S. national team because he's been playing so well within this infrastructure. To have guys like Sean Davies, who was a part of that 2009 national team, to be able to be one of our assistant coaches and probably between you, me, and the gatepost is probably one of the brightest and most young up-and-coming um, coaches that we have in the United States. I mean, really, just to see that and how we've committed ourselves as an organization to developing domestic talent and being a part of um, building this pathway. Because here in Utah, you, you, you know, like I was saying, there's there's so much rugby success, not only with the Polynesian community, but with the high school and the colleges. You know, one of our current players, Logan uh, Tago, for example, um, fans might not be, you know, very well aware of him, but he played this last weekend. He came off the bench um, against uh, Atlanta. You know, he's six foot four, 225 pounds, former D1 uh, football uh, defensive lineman. Where was he? Washington State? Washington right? State. Hmm. Uh, grew up in American Samoa, um, played quite a bit of rugby there, but, you know, because of the American influence, played a lot of, you know, football um, and got a Division One scholarship, played, you know, kicked around the NFL for a little while, um, was actually contracted in the, XF, or in, in the Canadian Football League last year before it shut down due to COVID. And we just, we were, we were hosting a touch rugby tournament on on the fields next to the stadium and we just see this like this guy just like galloping running like a gazelle just moving like no other human being could move and his ball handling skills were really solid in his size and his power and his speed uh, granted, he was playing, you know, a bunch of washed up has-beens like me, you know, but <laughs> at the same time you could tell that that guy had had skills. A, a similar thing with a, a guy by the name of Joe Mono. Um, he was playing in the local men's club stuff here in Utah, but never really been given a shot within Major League Rugby. We gave him a shot. He was one of our leading try scorers before he tore his ACL this year. And he's probably, if he can recover and get back, he's probably going to be one of, um, he's probably going to be getting interest from bigger clubs in Europe within the next couple of years. He's that good. And those are guys that are just kind of growing like weeds here in Utah. And so to see those guys and, I mean, just to see all of these little bips and bobs of the the BYUs and the Utahs and all of these Highland guys and these United guys and uh, the Harriman players and just to see it all kind of coalesce to be able to help people see that what Utah can live up to in terms of its rugby potential is gratifying. Where we end up at? against a team like L.A. that's got a bunch of former, you know, Wallabies and super rugby players, which is very different from our model of of domestic grassroots, you know, bringing in younger up-and-coming guys. You know, we're, we're going to do the exact same thing we did in 2009. We're going to hopefully burn the boats and just leave it all on the table and see what happens. I can't wait to see it the uh, next couple of weeks. Okay, so – the Warriors have announced a 10,000-seat stadium as well in the next mm-hmm. several years. Mm-hmm. That's a massive move. Yeah. That's going to be, what, the third biggest stadium and if it's in Salt Lake County. I mean, you got Rice Eccles, you got Rio Tinto, and then the Utah Warriors. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're still committed to that concept. We haven't said a lot about it for a variety of reasons over the last, you know, four or five months. And candidly, that's a little bit on purpose. Um, we're having to go through the process with a little bit uh, of, of a finer tooth comb than what we first needed or thought. Um, but it's still on the horizon. It's still something that's a priority to us. I mean, candidly, you know, we sold out this last game uh, of 4,500. Uh, we expect somewhere close on this L.A. game. And with the, the commercial team and if the team continues to be successful, we believe that we'll be selling that place out next year almost every home game because it's 
again, it's a part of our community. It's a part of our identity. It's something that we want to give back to our rugby community and be a part of. And once people begin to get established and connected to the brand, uh, fitting into a 10,000-seat stadium is going to be just the right size for us. But outside of that, from a business perspective, you know, it makes sense for us to continue to help grow our sustainability and scalability as as a business. Um, because I said, as I said earlier, sports, professional sports, especially a young startup league and a young startup team, you're not making lots of money. And you've got to figure out ways to to try to decrease the blow um, for your partners and your investors uh, as much as you can and getting into a stadium, being able to control all your own revenue streams uh, from that facility is something that's important to us and is vital to help us make sure that we can make this uh, something that will be here 30, 40 years from now. Well, when you were 23, you called your shot. And it's happening, which is super exciting. It's super fun for me personally to be involved with this team that does have a handful of former BYU guys, of course, some Utah guys, Tanata Lauti and Danny Christensen and others that are doing great work as well. So it's pretty fun to see rugby grow in this community in a professional space that it hasn't occupied before. So hopefully it continues to go well, and uh, in 10 or 15 years we can continue to see the growth and, and see where it goes. So it's been a fun journey, Kimball, and uh, you and I still have a lot, a lot of journey left. I hope uh, so. With the Utah Warriors, which is su- I, super exciting. I, I hope so. And, and, you know, on that horizon, 10, 15 years, you're looking at uh, a World Cup in the United States. You're looking at, you know, our, our stadium. You're looking at all sorts of things. I mean, rugby um, is the second largest sport in the world behind soccer. Um, and it's it's going to take its rightful place here in the U.S. But the key thing for me and what what I hope, you know, BYU fans and everyone else comes to realize is that Utah should and can be, as soon as people think of Major League Rugby, we want people to think of Utah. That's, that's what I hope and what, 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 how we're building things. And again, I'm not trying to be braggadocious or anything like that with our MLR partners because I have tons and tons of respect for all of them. But um, there's just something different about the community here in Utah and what we can do because of that. And, and for me, it all started with BYU. It all started way back when I didn't know my head from my tail and trying out for the rugby team and, you know, this, this school and everything that came from it, uh, I owe a lot to. So I'm very grateful. Okay, thanks, Kimball. We appreciate the time, man. Well, thank you.